0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, Taiwan has been governed independently since 1949. Beijing views the island as a renegade province and vows to unify Taiwan with the mainland using force if necessary. So should the US respond and does it have the capability? And China hits a major milestone in modernizing its military. The largest and most advanced Chinese aircraft carrier may be hitting the water soon. What that means for their ability to project power. And the Defense Department relies on critical minerals to make everything from ammunition to night vision goggles. The problem is those critical minerals come from China. We'll talk about the plan to address vulnerabilities in the defense supply chain. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gergis.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gergis. President Biden has said that if China attacks Taiwan, the U.S. would defend them militarily. But given China's intense armed forces modernization, is that even possible? Joining me is Michael O'Hanlon. He's the Philip Knight Chair in Defense and Strategy at the Brookings Institution. Mike, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Mimi. Nice to be with you.
1: So what is American policy vis-a-vis coming to Taiwan's military
2: defense? Well, it's a great question with no simple answer. Uh, maybe the easiest way to start is to say historically, We had such dominance over China, even even around an island that's 100 miles from the Chinese coast and thousands of miles from our mainland and thousands of miles from our nearest naval base in Hawaii or even Guam. And and yet things have changed. And now uh, militarily, it's a much more even and tough call as to what would happen there. Strategically, getting to your point about what our policy is, we still have this so-called strategic ambiguity stance where we do not commit in advance to defend Taiwan no matter what. We say it would all depend on how the crisis or conflict began, who, who, who caused it, whose fault it seemed to be. And the goal here has been historically to try to uh, discourage Taiwan from declaring independence or taking any other action that would make war more likely. Yeah, I was going to uh,
1: ask it, you, yeah. what's the purpose for that? Why not just come out and say, this is what we'll do in order to deter Chinese
2: action? Well, that historically the, the reason has been what i just said and it still has a certain applicability because many in taiwan would like to be independent and also they might judge the military balance differently than i do they might acknowledge that china is getting stronger but they might still think there, there's a window where the united states could defend them successfully or where china wouldn't think it's ready to attack and if they declare independence during that window they create a Fed accompli so that would be the concern we would want to discourage that because we don't think that the odds of increased war, uh, you know, are, are are worth the benefit here of, of Taiwan sort of resolving the issue once and for all and becoming independent. So it's dual deterrence, trying to deter two different parties, either one of them from starting a war. Many people think this is now an obsolete policy, however, given China's strength, and we better be more clear. But my point is, it's one thing to say what we would do, it's right. something else to do it. And it's not obvious that we would win in any and all scenarios around and, Taiwan.
1: And that's the real question here. Does the US have the military capability to defend Taiwan?
2: We have the capability to maybe win and maybe lose and probably have a long, tough fight. <laughs> you know, And maybe that sounds like I'm just punting, but we've all been surprised, or almost all of us, by how the Russia-Ukraine conflict has gone. Most of us were surprised by how the Iraq war went you know war is unpredictable it's much more unpredictable than a sporting event because in sports at least you have a time duration agreed rules and the same number of people on each side Uh, and you still get wildly you know divergent outcomes with the same two teams playing different games here we're talking about you know a a kind of combat which obviously raises the greatest stakes for the parties which involves technologies that often haven't been used before the same way because technology is always advancing, that can expand or contract in time duration or geography. So war is inherently an unpredictable business and uh when the two parties are relatively evenly matched in terms of resources uh, that is even more the case now we still outspend china three to one on defense so you could say well isn't that a big u.s advantage yes to an extent but we also have responsibilities of course in europe and the broader middle east and so the, the china western pacific theater is really only one of our three main concerns and if you look at it that way it sort of makes the playing field more or less level in terms of resource expenditure by the two sides.
1: Well, let's, let me ask you specifically about a blockade. Could the US break a Chinese blockade of Taiwan?
2: I don't know. I've spent now uh, 17,000 words, in other words, sort of a quarter of a book in a long article trying to assess that question. And I conclude that there are assumptions and scenarios by which the answer would be yes other equally plausible assumptions and paths by which the answer might be no. A lot of it's going to depend on whose satellite network survives better and who's able to communicate better because a lot of this is going to be, you know, attacking ships uh, or keeping ships protected. And then of course, our anti-submarine warfare capability would be crucial because China would probably use its submarines to try to attack merchant ships and maybe US Navy ships In this kind of a scenario but the waters around the taiwan strait around the south china sea in this whole area are difficult it's hard to know exactly how well we would do at finding those chinese submarines it's hard to know how well they would do at getting information to target ships from their own satellites and airplanes and so when i play it out and make some plausible assumptions but try to vary those assumptions reflecting the uncertainty of the problem I conclude that there's really no way to be sure who would win.
1: How big of a defense budget is the Pentagon going to need to get to the point of China not even wanting to think about it? You you just said, you know, we, we outspend them three to one already.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that way because I don't think there is an answer to that question. And, you know, there is a lot of vigorous and important debate about whether the 2023 DEFENSE BUDGETS SHOULD BE SOMETHING IN THE RANGE OF CLOSER TO 750 BILLION OR 800 BILLION OR EVEN MORE THAN THAT, LARGELY WITH INFLATION BEING A BIG QUESTION MARK. BUT I THINK EVEN IF WE SPEND A TRILLION DOLLARS A YEAR ON OUR MILITARY, MOST OF THESE CORE UNCERTAINTIES WOULD REMAIN, AND CHINA MIGHT VERY WELL CHOOSE TO SPEND MORE AS WELL. THEY COULD. THEY'RE SPENDING A SMALLER FRACTION OF THEIR GROSS DOMESTIC PRODUCT ON THEIR MILITARY THAN WE ARE. AND SO I THINK IT'S entirely doable for them to ramp that up. The main problem is the state of technology. It's not so much whether we outspend them three to one, four to one, it's it's that both sides have quiet submarines, both sides have vulnerable satellites and means to attack the other side's satellites. Both sides have very precise long range missiles and are building a lot more. Uh, And so when you put all these things together and you integrate them into a complex, you know, kill chain that hasn't really been battle tested and can't really be battle tested, Uh, the way it would be in an actual war. I think you just have too many inherent uncertainties. You can try to minimize and narrow those uncertainties. You can do a classified analysis. I don't think though that you could really be confident in predicting who's gonna win.
1: Really quick, Michael, is Taiwan worth it?
2: Well, uh, 23 million people is a lot of people, but it's nowhere near the preponderance of, you know, the populations of our major allies. They produce a lot of semiconductors, but over time we could diversify. I don't think that the fate of 23 million people is worth World War III or nuclear war. Uh, right. But I don't want—I don't want to sell those people out either. So we're going to have to find some better deterrent posture that involves economics as much as military tools. Agreed,
1: Michael. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Mimi. Coming next, China's po- poised to launch its most advanced aircraft carrier. What the, what that means for naval operations in the Pacific. You're watching WJLA 24/7 News. new satellite imagery shows China's third aircraft carrier may be afloat soon. It's their largest and most advanced carrier. Warren Strobel is a national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Warren, welcome. Good
0: morning.
1: So, you reviewed the satellite images of the shipyard where the carrier was being built. What do we know about how close it is to being at sea and operational?
3: Well, uh, even since we reported our story, there's some uh, indications just in the last few days that the Chinese have uh, flooded the dry dock where the uh, carrier has been uh, under construction these last few years. So that indicates they're getting uh, closer and closer to actually putting it out, not to sea, but into the Yangtze River and starting the initial initial trials and eventually uh, sea trials and eventually operations. So uh, it's getting closer.
1: What do we know about the timeline for it to be at sea and actually operating as a carrier
3: so that's a very good question actually it'll take some time um you know this is a multi-billion dollar ship and you don't just kind of float it away um it it normally will take a year or even two to go through full sea trials and uh work everything out before they can make it you know fully operational and part of their um, their active navy
1: so what additional capabilities will this third carrier give the chinese navy
3: Well, quite a bit, actually, at least in theory. I mean, it will allow them to project uh, more power, um, both in the seas around China and theoretically beyond, um, in the same way that the United States uses aircraft carriers as both symbols and real, real power, um, power projection. The question I think is, this is a, you know, a very capable carrier. It's the first one that the Chinese have designed indigenously as their previous two carriers were, were sort of um, knockoffs of, uh, of Russian made vessels. Um, so the question is, you have this carrier, but doing carrier aircraft carrier operations is actually a very difficult thing. It involves a whole fleet of ships that go with the carrier. It involves aircraft flying off and landing from carriers. It's something the Americans have done for a long time. And even in peacetime, there are accidents quite frequently with American ships. So um, the question is, can the Chinese do full combat carrier operations and how long will it take them to get to that point? But certainly this is an important, analysts think this is an important new capability for them.
1: Well, the U.S. has 11 deployed aircraft carriers. So should China's three carriers really cause any alarm?
3: uh i would say not immediate alarm um in the sense that again the first carrier that they built was basically one that they bought from the soviet union and uh, retrofitted their second carrier was a uh, sort of a model built after that this is the first one they built from scratch um it's important symbolically in terms of china showing itself as a rising power it does give them more um, power projection but it will likely take them some time if ever, to catch up, you know, the United States has been doing aircraft carrier operations basically since, since World War II. So it's a matter of concern, but I wouldn't say alarm.
1: So aside from aircraft carriers, how big is China's Navy and how technologically advanced is it? I mean, you talked a little bit about that, but really compare it to the American Navy as far as capability.
3: That's a really, really good question. And it's sort of an apples and oranges thing. The Chinese Navy is said to be the biggest in the world in terms of the number of ships. But I think uh, it's fair to say that u s ships by and large are more capable, so we have a smaller navy in terms of pure numbers but uh, more capable um, vessels and certainly more um, more uh, what's what more experience in doing deep blue water um, operations far from the shores of the United States, which the Chinese are just in the last decade or so are getting they've done more they've done stuff uh, anti smuggling in the Red sea and they've They've done, um, you know, trips with their ships, uh, port calls and so forth farther and farther from China. Um, So clearly Chinese have a a serious Navy, one that they're trying to expand and get more sophisticated. I would say the United States, um, I'm a a little bit biased. I'm a son of a Navy officer. I would say the U.S. Navy is still the most powerful in the world, at least for now.
1: Well, as you said, this is the first carrier that was built indigenously by China. I wonder how alarming that is to the Pentagon as far as where they are uh, with respect to where the the U.S. was expecting them to be in their naval modernization efforts?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, all the folks in the news has been on Ukraine for good reason in the last six months. But uh, we talked to the people at the Pentagon and China is still what they call the pacing threat. It's their main concern. Um, it's the only near peer competitor. And I think, uh, you know, they're, they're watching the Navy very closely in China because uh, US naval supremacy has been just sort of a given for the last um, 30, 40 years. Um, I think they see China moving a- along about as in the, on the pace that they thought they would. But, um, you know, they see this sort of rising curve. And, uh, and that's of concern to them. So they're watching it very, very closely.
1: And and what details can you tell us about the the aircraft that sit on those carriers and and how much of a challenge they pose to the US?
3: Um, So a couple of things. First of all, this carrier, um, modern US carriers um, have nuclear propulsion, um, which is a great benefit in terms of not having to refuel and and things like that. Um, This carrier is not, it's more conventionally powered. Uh, The Chinese are looking in the future, potentially having nuclear powered aircraft carriers. So that's one thing. Um, interestingly, the um, the launch for the aircraft, um, the, the Chinese have sort of leapfrogged ahead and um, they are hoping to do what the US now does which is that you have an electromagnetic system that propel- propels the aircraft off the aircraft carrier. Um, it's not the old sort of uh, catapult launch that the US used for many years. The Chinese just kind of leapfrogged over that and they're trying to go straight to the most modern uh, modern system to launch aircraft off the aircraft carrier. Um, in terms of the uh, the planes, I, I have to apologize, I'm not an expert on that, but I would say that they are developing, um, sometimes based on US models and sometimes perhaps based on stolen American uh, technology and blueprints, they're developing uh, aircraft that can capable aircraft that can operate off the carriers.
1: All right, well, Warren, I appreciate your uh, taking the time to talk to us about this, thank you very much.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Coming next on Government Matters, reducing the DOD's reliance on critical minerals from China and Russia. We'll be right back. The Defense Industrial Base relies on basic materials such as critical minerals and rare earth elements. The problem is many of these materials come from China and, to a lesser extent, Russia. Bryant Harris is a reporter for Defense News. He's been covering this issue. Bryant, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Explain the
4: national defense stockpile. What's in it? Who runs it? So the national defense stockpile is a lot like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for oil. Basically it's a national, federally-owned stockpile of critical minerals that are needed for. Uh, supply chains in the defense industrial base, but also, you know, vital things like technology for your iPhone. Um, It's managed by the Defense Logistics Agency at the Defense Department. But it's funded by the Treasury Department. Why why not DOD? (laughs) That's a very good question. Um, And part of what Congress is trying to look at right now is basically, um, A, allocating more money for it, and be uh, kind of uh centralizing it because part of the problem is that congress has authorized a lot of uh sell-offs and there's no there hasn't been much of a regular appropriations process for it
1: explain that because how how is congress just selling it off uh, i guess just to make money can they just do that
4: um, so a lot of times, uh, basically, Congress will need to fund the program. So it's kind of been looked at as this easy target in the past when we were more focused on overseas things like counterterrorism operations. But as we get more towards near-peer competition with uh, countries like China and Russia, they've, Congress has started to realize that this has kind of been a bad idea. Um, you know, in 1952, at the peak of the Cold War, we had 42. Uh, the National Defense Stockpile was worth 42 billion in today's dollars. That's dwindled down to 888 million as of last year. So, a pretty drastic reduction. Um, and they're trying to uh, get more regular appropriations to bolster it. Um, uh, especially because you know, if China were to invade Taiwan or something, they would easily cut off our supply of a lot of these minerals, and we'd be at—we uh, wouldn't have an adequate replacement to reproduce ammunition. Well, let's
1: talk about one of those uh, minerals. It's called antimony, mm-hmm. and what is that used for? What does the Defense Department use that mineral for?
4: Uh, so, antimony is uh, one of the minerals that Congress is most concerned about because it's used uh, in a wide array of things, everything from basic ammunition, things like as basic as bullets, all the way to explosive nuclear weapons and things like night vision goggles. So just this whole range of things. Um, and Congress is specifically concerned about antimony right now because we import nearly all of it from China. Russia is getting a bigger market share too, but obviously we have issues with them in Ukraine. The third largest country is Tajikistan, which is in Russian's orbit and somewhat close to Iran. Um, so. So not a lot of good options there. Exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Does the U.S. have mines that can produce it?
4: Uh, So interestingly enough, uh, during World War II, uh, Japan cut us off from our supply of antimony from China, and then we got a lot of it from a gold mine in Idaho um, as a byproduct of that mine, uh, we were able to uh, obtain this antimony. However, that mine shut down in 1997, and that's part of the reason why um, we don't have a very strong domestic supply of antimony and why we're importing nearly all of it from China. So that mine is currently inactive. My understanding right now is it's ongoing; it's undergoing an environmental review to potentially um, restart operations. Okay, so besides that review, what is Congress proposing be done about this? So, they're kind of just taking the first stab at it. First and foremost, actually, the Defense Department itself has asked for $250 million to fund the National Defense Stockpile. So, first, they're trying to bolster it with the appropriations process. Uh, Two, in the um, National Defense Authorization Act, which they just started drafting this month, they want their taking the, they're looking specifically at Antimony. They're asking the National Defense Stockpile Manager who manages the stockpile course to brief them specifically on Antimony um, by October. And they also want a five-year plan on the status and outlook for supply chain of antimony. There's also an interesting provision in the Defense Authorization Act that they're drafting that's asking the Defense Department to institute a policy to uh, recycle spent batteries so you can get some critical minerals from there, like lithium, for instance.
1: I was gonna ask you about some of the other minerals and and rare earth metals that are required for the defense supply chain.
4: Yeah, so um, you have uh, things like Tantalum, cobalt, lithium, but with all these minerals, you kind of run into a lot of the same issues. For cobalt, for instance, a lot of that comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and China controls like something, something like seventy percent of the mining operations there. Um, and you know, you need uh, uh, you need these minerals for things like um, designing uh, air airframes for aircraft. Um, and just a whole host of other things that are critical to um, even replenishing things like the Javelin and Stinger missiles that we've been sending over to Ukraine.
1: So there seems to be a really big vulnerability here. Is there there a plan to start stockpiling and maybe getting as much as we can from China before they cut us off for whatever reason?
4: Um, I haven't heard of any plan to stockpile as much as possible from China specifically, but that is kind of the idea of the national defense stockpile. Um, I will say yesterday, the State Department just announced uh, a strategic uh, minerals partnership with several close allies in Canada. And the goal of that is kind of to rely on countries like, you know, Germany, France, Canada, Japan to kind of uh, collect these minerals uh, between us to kind of strengthen those supply chains so we're not at the mercy of competitors like China, for instance.
1: All right. Well, Brian, I appreciate you being on here and and, uh, covering this uh, very critical issue for us. Thank
4: you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us a comment on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and ten thirty on WJLA twenty four seven News, and Sunday mornings at ten thirty on Seven News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor. Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
0: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional. uh, Meaning that In the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All
1: right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank
0: you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our Daily Show is produced by Katherine Roloff. Our Managing Director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our Web Editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit GovMatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.